0: Welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm Bill Arnold. I think today we're going to put another log on the fire, get a cup of cocoa, gather around that old fireplace, and we're going to talk about an authentic Christmas celebration. Uh, What is your favorite part of celebrating Christmas? My guest today is Beverly Canaris. She was a uh, 30-plus year Bible study fellowship teaching leader and also co-host of the podcast She Is Becoming. Always glad to have Beverly on. Greetings, Bev.
1: Thank you, Bill. Yeah. Good to be here. And it is a lovely time of year, isn't it? It's the best. It is the best.
0: Yeah. And I can't wait to dig into uh, an authentic Christmas celebration.
1: I know. Well, this really came out of my own life. I was curious because there seems to be kind of a debate um, in the Christian community. How much should we celebrate or when should we celebrate Um should we be very austere? Should we be very, uh, you know, elaborate in our, our, our celebrations? What's appropriate? And um, I, I haven't seen a whole bunch on what's appropriate. There's a lot of ideas, but not really going back to God's Word. So I love Christmas time. I love the music. I love the baking. I love having people in my home. And I really don't even mind gift buying if I had an unlimited budget. <laughs> it's always the budget part that yeah. gets in the way of that. And then Christmas cards, oh, my husband loves to do them. So uh, we kind of share that responsibility, which is great. Do
0: you guys do personal notes in the cards?
1: Uh, he does. I do not. Good for
0: him. Yeah, I Good just
1: I just can't.
0: That's his chance to connect.
1: I know. He's better at it than beautiful. I am. Uh, it's a go, beautiful Paul. thing. I know. Yeah. He gets a kudos for that yeah. for sure. Well, have you ever stopped, though, Bill, to ask the question, am I authentically celebrating Christmas? And what would authentic celebration look like? Um, so where can we find what defines authentic celebration? Well, we can look to our culture, certainly, the American culture. If, however, if we look for guidance in our culture, it's going to be very misleading. Our society has recast Christmas into its own image. As an outsider looking in, would most likely define America's Christmas celebration as bloated consumerism, bloated appetites, and bloated stress from extreme busyness. You see, sadly, our society also gives the message you must be happy at Christmas when so many are hurting so deeply. So many have removed Christ from the celebration, and that leaves really nothing but empty celebration then. Uh, authentic celebration, by contrast, can fill us and our families with gifts that last forever. So we really can't look at society necessarily to get an accurate, authentic Christmas picture, celebration picture. So we could look at history. I suppose the exact date of Jesus's birth was it December twenty-fifth, year one? Mm-hmm.
0: Wouldn't I don't that think be so. convenient? Yeah, it would be convenient, <laughs> but I'm not so sure about that.
1: No, it really isn't, is it? Over the centuries, um, people have speculated, but God chose not to give us the exact time. Uh, many put his birth actually around 4 BC. Now, if we are not sure of the day, how did December 5th come about? Isn't that a good question? Why this date? Well, like some of the other holidays, like with Halloween or whatever, this was actually the time of a pagan holiday that the early church sought to transform by focusing in on the incarnation, Christ's birth. Now, some church traditions even celebrate Christmas on in January. January 6th is the Orthodox official celebration day. Uh, Gift giving, the Jesus got three gifts. A lot of gift giving at this time of year. Of course,
0: but, we don't know three gifts. No, we don't. No. We just only we, know that there, th- there, that there
1: were that uh, there were there were three um, gifts. Yes, but there were not. We don't know if there were three wise men.
0: Right. Of course. That, yeah. That yes. was the
1: way. That's the tricky three part gifts of that. Were reported. Reported. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. I'm sure they that's were very lavish. Me. Uh, yeah. As me too. Teachers. Yeah.
0: I'm good. Yeah. And yeah. we
1: used to tell our kids that too. The wise men. They brought three gifts. Jesus got three gifts. I think that's enough for you, too. But then I would stuff (laughs) their stocking with goodies, you know. I'm sure that
0: didn't go over well.
1: Yeah, no. Um, Anyway, this time of year also had a uh, a Roman pagan holiday called Saturnalia. And during this time, it was really unrestrained merrymaking. It was common in that celebration to give gifts. Christmas trees have some uh, looking to that as a as a tradition. How did that get started? Well, that really had German roots. Others point to this, again, primitive Roman celebration where they actually worshiped trees and brought them into their home and decorated them. Now, where does Santa Claus come from? Well, it really represents St. Nicholas. He was a bishop in Turkey from the 4th century who was so generous in helping needy children that it has evolved over the years And since the 18th century, we kind of have this modern Santa, which creates such a dilemma for parents. Do I lie to them and say Santa's coming? Mm -hmm. Do I not? Do I do what? How do I handle Santa? So I know every young parents have to kind of wrestle that one through. And it is a wonderful, magical thing with children. And yet there's that pull both ways. Mm -hmm. So. That's part of the celebration. Now, the history of Christmas traditions is interesting, but again, they don't really represent authentic Christmas celebration. So the third place we're going to look, of course, is the Bible, the Old and the New Testament and see if we can get a little more accurate picture of authentic celebration. And I want to give some principles that I'm going to take from Scripture to guide us as we seek to celebrate this time of year. You know, we all hear a lot of good ideas about celebrating Christmas, don't we? Uh, how to keep our celebrations, uh, you know, within, uh, keep focused on Christ. But so often, a lot of these ideas, you can get a book on 52 ideas on how to celebrate and keep Christ focused in your celebration. So often, though, as a young mom, I found that really quite overwhelming. So it, I would rather take some principles and then apply it in a way that would be right for my family. So I wonder, how has God in his word, the Bible, instructed celebrations? Well, all we have to do is look at the seven feasts commanded by the Lord in the Old Testament. Israel was to celebrate each one of these on an annual basis. So the religious calendar was meant to keep Israel in relationship with the Lord, remind them of what God had done on their behalf. So these Old Testament festivals were also shadows of what the Messiah would bring when he would come. Now, once the Messiah came, Jesus Christ, the purpose of these festivals has really been fulfilled in him in beautiful ways. Let's just mention a, a, these uh, one at a time quickly and also take from it something, some way that they had uh, celebration. Passover and unleavened bread was the first two. The history of Passover, of course, is when Israel was in bondage to um, Egypt and they were delivered from that. Uh, they, Passover was a time when they put blood on their doors and the, and they were spared um, through that. It's really a picture of the crucifixion of the of blood of Christ that gives us redemption. We are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Also, it's a picture of the unleavened bread of sanctification, the Holy Spirit giving us power over sin to get rid of the leaven that corrupts. So what do we see from here? We see that there is um, remembering. We want to remember in our celebrations what God has done for us, and we want to be preparing to receive more of Christ.
0: Mm -hmm. A lot of people are right now wondering, who is this wise woman saying all these interesting things? I just need to let and remind my audience, it's Beverly Canaris, who's joining me. We're talking about an authentic Christmas celebration. So, Bev, you're doing a great job. This is so interesting.
1: It's very interesting because when you kind of um, take out the history context and you just kind of look at how they celebrated them, it's very helpful to guide us today. So the next one would be the first fruits. This was a festival of thanksgiving for the first fruits of the harvest with the expectation of faith that, you know, more would come from God. This, again, really pictures the resurrection of Christ. Christ is the risen from the dead, the first fruits. So another part of celebration is thankfulness. Then we have Feast of the Weeks. This seven weeks after Passover, another celebration uh, was there for the harvest. It was really a shadow of the coming of the promised Holy Spirit, which came on Pentecost on this particular Feast of the Weeks in Acts 2. Then we have the Feast of the Trumpets, the early autumn solemn assembly called to help them prepare for the next day of atonement. Trumpets were blown, and when Christ comes again, Bill, trumpets are going to be heard again. I love that. So what this really does, the trumpets, is it says that we should be anticipation. There should be an anticipation in our celebrations of the future plan of God. We can know Jesus Christ came once as a baby in the incarnation, and we know that he's coming again. That thought should be part of our celebrations. And then the Day of Atonement, this was the only day that Israel was asked to fast, Now, believers in Christ are forgiven, not annually, but one event that happened when Christ died on the cross. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, once for all. I love those verses in Hebrews. So also, our celebration, it's a time to examine our life before God, just as Israel did on the Day of Atonement. The final feast was the Feast of Booths. I find this so fascinating. It was really, again, thankfulness for the harvest that had finished, thankfulness for protection and provision for the people in the wilderness so that Israelites would make these little makeshift booths and live in them for seven days.
0: It's so so interesting.
1: Isn't it? Now, I have driven through certain parts of the Twin Cities, and I have seen this during this time of year where they build these little you know, wooden little structures in the back of their home. And they go out there and they have services for a week in that little booth that they made. And it's supposed to be a festival really celebrated with great joy. And it really pictures the arrival of Christ's kingdom on earth, God's culmination of his plan. So we're to remember past blessings and we're to celebrate them. Just coming here today, I was celebrating what a lot of the things that God had done in my life. And that's really very much a part to be a part of our celebrations, remembering back. Leviticus 23 describes the festivals in this way. These are the Lord's appointed feasts, sacred assemblies, and you are to proclaim them at their appointed time. So it's interesting that these festivals really reflect the timing of Christ's life. The idea of having an early church calendar was God's idea. And this certainly affirms a merit to regular yearly celebrations. Because celebrations were symbols used to remind God's people of who God is and what he has done for them. And Christmas should be no different. Festivals were meant to set aside the regular work, be deliberate in acknowledgement of God, assembling together to do this. In fact, when I total up the days that there were festivals to the Lord, there were 17 then, when you add in the weekly Sabbaths, 52, you have a total of 69 days, no regular work, in order to make time for the relationship with God. I find that astounding.
0: I do, too. We're astounding. Not, we're not following that program, are we?
1: We're not. We're mm-hmm. not. And that's why Christmas is here now. Let's make the most of it and make it a an authentic celebration. So what elements can we pull from these festivals in the Old Testament that give us some principles for authentic celebration of Christ's birth today? First of all, thanksgiving for daily provision, salvation's provision through Christ. We're to assemble together with God's people and we're to set aside time for these purposes. We're to take time to concentrate on what God has done for us. Well, there's two other illustrations in the Old Testament that are worth mentioning. After they crossed the Red Sea, Miriam led the people in dance and worship. And our celebrations are to have worship as well. That's to be a part of celebrating. And then the second illustration is from Esther. Maybe you've heard of, Purim. It's a festival that was a result of um, the miraculous salvation of the Jews through Esther and her uh, uncle Mordecai. Mm-hmm. And what they did, it was to be a day of feasting, a joy, a day of giving presents to each other. There were presents of food to one another and also sending gifts to the poor. And you know, that's part of our authentic celebration as well. Not only sending gifts to each other and our loved ones, but to those who may have so much less than we Mm do.
0: Bev, is this an okay time to take a little break? This
1: would be perfect because then we can go into the fourth principle.
0: I can hardly wait to come back and hear what the fourth principle is. Beverly Canaris is my guest. We're talking today about an authentic Christmas celebration. And if you've missed any of this, you definitely want to go to uh, the beginning and hear it from the start. We'll be right back after a short break. Hey, it's the end of the year, and you are absolutely amazing in your generosity. Thank you so much. If you've not made a gift to Faith Radio, we would love it. You can do that at myfaithradio.com. Thank you so much. If you just joined me, my guest is Beverly Canaris. We're talking about an authentic Christmas celebration. This is really wonderful. So if you are uh, needing some reminding of what an authentic Christmas celebration looks like, uh, there are some principles that she just discussed. One was Thanksgiving for daily provision and salvation's provision through Christ, assembling together with God's people and setting aside time for these purposes. Now it brings us to a fourth principle, which is what?
1: Which is um, the joy of what God has done for us can be demonstrated by the sharing of food gifts, and worship. So um, that is very helpful to me because I love to bake and I love to have people in our home to feed them. And I love to give gifts and worshiping the Lord, that just takes your heart to the right place. Mm -hmm. So those are very uh, appropriate ways to celebrate when it's time to celebrate, whether it's Easter or Christmas, uh, whatever the religious holiday is, that is very appropriate. Yeah,
0: Bev, can I ask now that um, as we look at the authentic Christmas celebration. You've really done an amazing job of taking us through some of the Old Testament uh, feasts and the way in which we would be uh, following uh, what Scripture would have us do. And what about now what we would learn in the the New Testament?
1: Well, that's a very good question. I think we can look at the Christmas story and learn quite a bit from there. Um, Mary has such joy, even in tough situations here, knowing that she is pregnant, not married yet, um, she says, My spirit glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of his humble state of his servant. So, joy. Mary experienced joy with the thought that the Savior was coming. And so, biblical joy doesn't mean, Oh, I'm happy because my circumstances are wonderful. There's a biblical joy that is an inside joy that it comes from knowing Christ and w- living your life with him. So, Mary was experiencing joy. Elizabeth's baby. Mary went to visit Elizabeth, her cousin, and she was pregnant with John the Baptist. And what happened? The baby leaped in her womb. So the very presence of Christ on earth, I think this tells us demands a personal response.
0: I love that story. I do too. I just love it.
1: I do too. Mm -hmm. And, but I just thought that's what happened there. It was John's personal response to meeting the savior for the first time. And then shepherds, some of the lowliest people just minding their own business, doing their job as shepherds, are given the privilege to be the first to celebrate Christ's birth. Angels appear to them. Glory of the Lord was shining all about them, announcing, Do not be afraid. I bring you great news of great joy that will be for all's peoples. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find him wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Christ came for all people. And we are to share Christ with others. Generally, people are way more open about hearing about Christ at Christmas time than any other time of the year, Bill. So it truly is an appropriate thing. And this is exactly what these shepherds did. Then a, grout, a great cloud of angels appeared to them. They were praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. So the shepherds rush off to see what the Lord told them. They go and see the baby and Mary and immediately go out and tell others about the child. What are we to tell? We're to tell them that a Savior has come. He is Christ the Lord, Emmanuel, God with us. This is the greatest news and the most joyful news we will ever have to share with others. You know the the often uh, saying hymn uh, at Christmas is "Go tell it on the mountain," mm-hmm. that Jesus Christ is born.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: This is the best news humanity has ever received, and Christmas time is a time to announce it and to share it with others. So I would just challenge all of us: look for those opportunities where you can share this. Invite people to church with you to Christmas services. Invite them into your home. Read scripture. Talk about Luke two. Um, It can have an amazing impact on others. Go tell it on the mountain or your friends. (laughs) Uh, Another example would be the wise men uh, in this Christmas story, Bill. Now, these were some very influential people. They were kings themselves. They spent time and money to come in person to worship the newborn king. They bowed down before him and gave him gifts worthy to a king. So that's a beautiful illustration of how to celebrate as well.
0: Although a couple of the gifts were odd.
1: They, they certainly were,
0: were. You know, inappropriate, it seems, that you would give burial spices to a newborn baby. I mean, a, a small baby. A yes, doesn't it? doesn't it? It does, but yeah. he came to die. The
1: frankincense. It's yeah. all very, and the king was for, the The gold was for the king. They were all very um, symbolic they were. of of the life of the Christ mirror. ahead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All was symbolic. Another New Testament illustration is the story Jesus told of the prodigal son and how the father celebrated here. We know in Luke 15, we hear about a son who takes his father's inheritance and goes off and squanders it all. And finally, the son repents and comes back to the father. And when he returns, the father orders there be a great celebration. They kill the fatted calf in order to feast. They dress him in fine clothes and invite people to celebrate with them. There was music, there was dancing, even though the older son was not happy, um, but the father explains, my son, you are always with me. Everything I have is you, yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So what's the takeaway? The parable really pictures all of us as the prodigal son and the father as God longing for us. It really pictures the celebration that we will have now and in the future kingdom. Revelation speaks of the wedding feast of the Lamb when Christ sits down to celebrate with his bride, the church, those of us who know Christ, that is all yet ahead of us. So this idea of sitting down, being with the Lord, celebrating um really pictures uh, such a beautiful thing, and there is a passage too it's kind of curious in the Bible where it says that the angels rejoice when one. Sinner repents. Two re- sinners. Mm-hmm. Two sinners or one? One. One. Yeah. That's what I thought. They absolutely rejoice and celebrate uh, when a sinner comes to Christ. Um, our fifth principle for this um, uh, biblical celebration is biblical celebration also means giving to the Lord and personal sacrifice. For Mary, it was joy and trust in God's plan for her. For the baby John the Baptist, it meant a personal response. For the shepherds, it meant sharing the good news. For the wise men, it meant giving their time, treasure, and their pride as they bowed down to the king. To the father in the prodigal son parable, it meant welcoming back the sinner, despite the great cost to himself. And to the rowdy, there's some at the Lord's table that he, he, he asked them um, that they were not taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy matter, and so that was not good celebration. They came as gluttonous and drunk, and uh, the Lord told them that that was not proper celebration. So that's my intent today, that we are able to celebrate in a way that the Bible describes all these different aspects. You know, if we do them and we do them in in the power of the Holy Spirit, I think we're going to have a very special holiday. So with these five principles, we can make informed decisions on what an authentic, christmas celebration could include
0: oh beautiful Bev. thank you for that uh beautiful illustration of an authentic christmas celebration it's uh, been a delight and merry christmas to you and your family
1: thanks bill same to you
0: thank you so much beverly canaris has been my guest we talked about an authentic christmas celebration you're going to want to hear that from the beginning if you missed any of it we'll take a break and we'll be right back with more If you just joined us, I'm so glad you're here, and we're going to start doing some teaching out of the uh, book of First John, chapter three. Our teacher today is my friend, longtime friend, uh, Dr. Greg Heddington. He's uh, a regular on the show. I always love having him on. Greg, welcome.
2: Thanks, Bill. Well, welcome to lesson number five of our study of some of the New Testament epistles, and today we look at First John three verses one to ten which is one of the circular letters written by John to several churches. The beloved apostle, known as the Apostle of Love, is doing his best to encourage the followers of Jesus who live not only in a pagan world, as we do, but also in a world infiltrated by people in church who rationalize immorality by adopting Gnosticism as their philosophy of life. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Okay. So as we start this letter, I want to say this, and it's a good thing to remember We tend to idealize the church sometimes, and the historical record gives us some some sterling examples from saintly people like Stephen, who was the first martyr, and heroic church people like Irenaeus. Uh, The records also offers some cautionary tales. Some believers were hypocrites, like Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to the early church. Some were libertines, like the immoral uh, Corinthians. Some stressed dietary laws and holy days, discouraging others for whom Jesus also died, but some preached Christ out of selfish ambition. Some deserted the faith entirely, now ignoring the Lord who saved them, and then there were Gnostics. It goes on and on, but the rest, in spite of shortcomings and failures, took the gospel into all the world, transforming lives and histories. So we need to know that we are sinners, not just because we sinned, but because we were born sinners. As G.K. Chesterton says, we are born upside down. But Jesus came along to put us right side up if we choose the life he wants for us. So we're not discouraged. Now, the Gnostics, that word begins with a silent G. The Gnostics affirmed the dualistic philosophy of Plato, who had developed it 300 years earlier. So it had a pretty good shelf life. And it claimed that all material things, including our bodies, are evil. But the spirit world, somewhere out there in time and space, is good and pure. The Gnostics claim that since the physical and spiritual worlds are two different entities, the body can live immorally, and it does not affect the spirit. And in fact, one could still consider themselves to be a Christ follower. Of course, that's very convenient if you want to live an immoral life. Now, this Gnostic philosophy influenced the early believers so Keep that philosophy in mind as John addresses the church and us as he talks about living the righteous life. That's really our theme today, living the righteous life. So we're going to talk about sin a lot in this lesson, but don't get discouraged because I will later give some suggestions of how believers can stay in godly shape in this uh, righteous life that we live. If you're taking notes, Roman number one, the pretenders. The United States Treasury Department has a special group of men and women whose job it is to track down counterfeiters. Naturally, this special group needs to know a counterfeit bill when they see it. How do they learn to identify false bills? Oddly enough, they're not trained by spending hours examining counterfeit money. Rather, they carefully study the real thing. Now, I'd heard about this, how they did this before in the past, so When I talked to one of these people, they confirmed that it is true that they become so familiar with handling and seeing authentic bills that they can spot a counterfeit by looking at it and Mm. simply by feeling it. Now, this is the approach of 1 John 3, when John warns us that in the world, these are pretenders or counterfeit Christ followers, as 1 John 3.10 calls them. Children of the devil. Now, the Greek word used there for devil is diabolos in Greek, which is also the same in Spanish, and it literally means slanderer. But instead of listing the evil characteristics of Satan's children, John gives a description of God's children, and the contrast is obvious. The key verse of chapter 3 is verse 10, which says, A true child of God practices righteousness and loves other believers in spite of the differences. Now this week we look at the topic of righteousness, and in the next lesson, which will be verses 11 to 24, we'll look at how loving others is John's primary message, because he is known as the gospel, the apostle of love. So today, John makes a couple of paradoxical statements, which might seem confusing at first. So, Roman numeral 2 Two paradoxical statements. John makes two seemingly contradictory statements in his letter, which is the definition of the word paradox. And the first statement is in 2.15 when he says, Do not love the world, and if you do, then the Father is not in him. That's the Father God is not in him. Now, does that mean we are to reject people who love the world? No, because in John's gospel, John three sixteen, a verse everybody knows, it says God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now John was the author of both of those verses, and John three sixteen means that God loves all people, and we are also called to love all people, but we are not to love in other words we are not to be devoted to the world system. Big difference here. And this world system is opposed to God, which lies under the dominion of the evil one. Now, let me explain. There has always been and there always will be opposition to our faith. And this has been a constant ever since Jesus visited the earth. We would like to say, can't we all just get along? But it's not to be because scripture tells us as long as we are alive, there will always be an invisible spiritual war. Yet we are called to live in this world, share the good news with others, and not compromise with evil if we want to, let's say, hit on all cylinders. It's a little automotive term, not to be confused with autoimmune, which is a term that affects the bodies, which we do not want to happen. Now, the second paradoxical statement is regarding sin. And we see it in 1 John 1, 6, which says, If we walk in darkness... Not if you occasionally visit the shadow of sin, but if you if you stroll along, if you spend a lot of time in darkness, then, quote, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, that's a strong statement. Mm-hmm. Then 214 states whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandment is a liar. And then John piles it on even further in three nine when he says no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Even though eight says, if we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves. Okay, so which one is it? Either we must stop sinning to demonstrate that we are a Christ follower, or we'll continue to sin no matter what. Which one is it? Does, it, does that bother anybody? Because It used to bother me, those two differing statements, because we take the Word of God seriously. Well, it bothered me for a long time until I finally took a little bit, bit of Greek studies and understood the Greek tense that John uses here is not what I thought it meant. In 3.9, John writes, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning and keeps sinning because he or she is born of God. So when John talks about a practice of sinning, he does not mean it's like occasionally practicing your forehand in tennis. John means, yes, we will sin because we are human, but we are new creatures in Christ, so we will not continue to walk in darkness and sin and take our time and stroll along. And here's where the Greek tense for sinning in this verse comes into play. John is referring to sin, which is continual, uninterrupted, habitual, intentional, willful, and unbroken as a way of life with no remorse and no repentance. Now, this is not occasional sinning. Again, John is referring to the philosophy of the Gnostics, who claim that a person can live a life of continual, unrepentant sin and still be a Christ follower. So the Greek tense of unbroken sin reflects to a condition of sin rather than an occasional act of sin, because we all sin. And let me say this again. The Greek tense of unbroken sin refers to a condition of sin rather than an occasional act of sin, which we all do. But the transformative supernatural power of the Holy Spirit can break that condition of habitual sin and death in us. Now, I love the way the 12 steps says, and 12 steps is taken from Scripture, really. It says it's about making progress, not perfection, because mm-hmm. we'll never do it perfectly. Again, this was a huge concern in the early church. John is saying that non believers not only practice unrighteousness, but they're not able to live righteously. As the great historian Will Durant said, You are what you repeatedly do. And the Apostle Paul articulates that spiritual battle when he writes in Romans seven fourteen, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's talking about that habitual, unending sin that so many people fall into. And, and it's not about willpower. It's not about psychology. Let me say a word about addiction here. There's, it could be addiction to drugs, to alcohol, to pornography, to eating too much, to eating too little. Addicts often try with all their might to break free of addiction, but but they're unable. Addiction is a terrible prison, and we sometimes have a hard time being around the addict in that state of dependency. But that does not mean they are loved any less by our Lord, even when they're addicted. And Paul says in Romans seven fourteen, Thanks be to God through Jesus our Lord, who is able to deliver our body from death. And when a believer sins, he or she is convicted of it by the Holy Spirit. But God knows our motivation our heart, our attitude, even if we fail to achieve what we desire to achieve. God has the final word regarding everyone's eternity. John 2 two says, it's the blood of the cross that makes Jesus the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is a $3 word. That means Jesus has appeased God's wrath toward our sin. That's good news. Now, I know this is heavy theology, but don't get lost. So let, me, let me say it this way. The cross restored favor with the Father. So now we can have communion with God. And that is supernatural. And uh, there's so much to talk about here, Bill. Maybe we ought to just take a break and talk a little later.
0: Yeah, that'd be good. Dr. Greg Hedington is my guest. We are uh, studying First John chapter 3. If you have your Bible open, always uh, try to have a notebook handy and a pen ready, because uh, Greg's great at giving us notes, and it does help us study it. So we'll take a short break and be right back. Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Join us for our Reading the Bible Together Advent Study. Sign up at MyFaithRadio.com. I am back with my friend and Bible teacher, Dr. Greg Hennington, and here at Faith Radio, we always want to try to lead people to Christ and nurture believers in their spiritual growth through Christ-centered teaching. And I so appreciate Greg's uh, teaching and just love sitting here with my Bible open and a notebook and taking notes. So, Greg, let's pick it
2: up. Well, Bill, we're talking about sin, and probably the best thing to think of is like a bullseye. People are maybe shooting range or shooting bows and arrows. There's a target, a, a, a center. Everybody's going for the center, but we miss it. We just can't quite keep it going straight. The Greek word is hamartia in most places. And literally, hamartia means to miss the mark. And that's what we do. It's just not easy. Uh, And um, I hope we've kind of cleared up now this paradoxical issue about, yes, we will sin, but not in a powerless, uninterrupted manner, because the Holy Spirit is in us. I mean, really in us. It's a supernatural thing. And we do not close our eyes when we read about something in Scripture that we don't understand. When we seriously study Scripture, we discover that we don't have to defend Scripture because Scripture defends itself. And let me say that again. We don't have to defend Scripture because Scripture defends itself. If things are tough or difficult, it's always good to look at the commentary to see what is actually being said here. So regarding sin, this side of eternity, we will never become sinless. But as we stay close to the Lord, we will sin less. Now, how would you describe sin? Well, one thing that's kind of interesting, there's the old joke of the man who comes home from the sermon, and the wife said, what did he preach on? The man said, well, he preached on sin. The wife said, well, what did he say about sin? And the man said, well, he's against it. Well, that's not really a very good definition of it. Um, How how would you describe sin? We talked about hamartia, missing the mark. Mm Mm-hmm. One way to describe it is as the desire, the the care for ourselves above everything else. We want what we want above everything else in order to be more comfortable in life, as opposed to living for the one who made us, the one who loves us more than we even love ourselves. So if you're taking notes again, Roman numeral three, sin as rebellion. John calls it lawlessness. Sin is basically a matter of the will. It's our attitude, our motivation. When we assert our our will against God's will, then it's really rebellion, and it's it's the root of sin. There's a story about the little girl, Judy, who's riding in the car with her daddy one day. She decides to stand up in the front seat, and her father commands her to sit down and put on her seatbelt. But she refuses and stands up. He tells her a second time again, and she refuses. Father says, if you don't sit down immediately, I'm going to pull over to the side of the road and spank you. Now, actually, there was a day when parents used to say that without a threat of lawsuit. So at this, little Judy obeys and sits down with her arms folded in front of her. And after a few minutes, she says, Daddy, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I am standing up on the inside. (laughs) Well, that's that's rebellion. And that's the way we are. Even if we don't always do the sin, as Jesus says, if you think it, it still sins. So we're we're sinning a lot. Now, we may constrain ourselves as far as others can tell, but there is rebellion, which others cannot see inside of us, which, you now it does prevent us from living a righteous life in Christ. Rebellion is the attitude of contempt for God's standards, and sin is the result of that attitude. And let, me re- let me repeat that again. Rebellion is the attitude of contempt for God's standards, and sin is the result of of that attitude Mm, so good during world war ii according to surveys the people of england were actually more anti-semitic than the people of germany but because the brits do their best to speak in a courteous manner toward other people always have they did not voice their racist opinions about the jews Now, the Germans who were Nazis, not all Germans, of course, but the ones who were Nazis, on the other hand, verbalized their hatred of the Jews. And those words naturally evolved into actions because it's easier to act on something once those words have been voiced. It's a much easier transition. So we are always to check our thoughts. Are we going to be negative today? Are we viewing others with grace instead? Are we waking up going, the Lord is with me today, and I know that it's going to be a positive day no matter what I'm going through? So, when an unbeliever sins, he or she is sinning against their Creator. When a Christ follower sins, they're sinning against their loving Father as a child of God. That's the difference. Unbelievers sin against the law, but the Christ follower sins against a loving Father. So the unbeliever sins against the law of God, which just says you must do these rules. This is it. But we know God loves us. And it's his love that we actually are sinning against. God is love. We know this from Scripture. And there is a poignant hymn written in 1882 by George Matheson that beautifully describes how our loving God will not let his children slip from his fatherly grasp. It's called, O Love That Wilt Not Let Me Go. And this is the first verse O Love That Will Not Let Me Go, I rest my weary soul in Thee. I give Thee back the life I owe, that in Thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Now, It is our greatest conviction that God will never let us go, never, ever leave us or forsake us. That was one of the very first verses I ever memorized in my life. That's Hebrews 13, verse 5. God will never leave us or forsake us. He values us no matter how we feel about ourselves, and we don't always feel good about ourselves. But we don't live on feelings, do we? We live on the the Word of God, the Word of God. I also like that that hymn, because it mentions the word Fuller, which is actually where I went to seminary in Los Angeles, although the writing of this hymn preceded the founding of Fuller Seminary by about 60 years, so there's actually no relationship between those two words, but anyway, that's where it comes in. But a true believer cannot live a pattern of continual, unbroken, rebellious life, because as verse 9 says, God's seed, that is the Holy Spirit that is in him or her, stays with us. It never leaves. It never forsakes us. A counterfeit believer cannot help but live a pattern of continual, unbroken rebellion because God's nature is not in him or her. But let's remember these words from John were not written so that we can check up on other people to see how they're doing. These words... We're inspired so that we may examine ourselves. And it's a full-time job to try and live righteous lives and receive all the joy that our Lord has for us. And again, I mentioned addicts earlier. W- what a prison. What an awful life to be an addict to whatever it is. We do pray, and really, ultimately, it's, it's, God's, it's God's work. It's his miracle that pulls anything out of it. It's not just mm-hmm. trying hard. It's not just being willful. Addiction is just difficult, and we always pray for the addict who is in his addiction or her addiction. Now, Roman numeral four, spiritual exercise. So like an athlete, how does the believer stay in shape? Well, we all need spiritual exercise because it does not matter how long you have known the Lord. Temptation never stops. I mean, while we're sleeping at night, the enemy's doing push-ups. And I think our spiritual exercises need to start as soon as we are awake in the morning. And for me, waking up, opening my eyes, and actually getting out of bed knowing the day has started. Or as someone has said, morning comes, whether you set the alarm or not. Mm-hmm. And I think we've all exercised that one time. So first of all, spiritual exercise includes consistent scripture reading. We've talked about this many times. Sin can keep us from reading Scripture, but Scripture uh, can keep us from sin, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be a long time. It could be a devotional. It, it could be just some chapters you're going through it, but it's worth doing daily, reading the Word of God. Secondly, second spiritual exercise includes doing good works in the name of Jesus. Now, when I do something kind for someone and they thank me, I, I usually just say, God bless you. Now, What I like about saying God bless you is it might make the other person pause for a moment and realize that it is God who blesses us. It's not just a pleasant response. And there's so many kinds of things we can do for others, just kind things. The easiest one that I think of we could do all day long is simply go up to somebody and say good morning. Take the initiative and say it. God bless you. Third, spiritual exercise includes sharing what you believe with someone else. And if it's, the, if it's the good news of Jesus, if we knew the cure for cancer, we would want everyone in the world to know it. So we share it. Fourth, spiritual exercise is building up other believers, encouraging them. Don't wait for them to encourage you. Step out first and do it. And the fifth spiritual exercise is prayer. Whether you pray out loud or silently, we ask the Lord to remind us that we are filled with the Holy Spirit And ask for his power to serve the Lord, to glorify him, and demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit that we know, according to Galatians 5, all the fruit of the Spirit. And here's a prayer we can always pray for your family and friends. May the light of God surround us, his love enfold us, his power protect us, and his promise hold us. Let me say that again. We can always pray. May the light of God surround us, his love enfold us, his power protect us. And his presence hold us. And I close with this. Friends, how many churches does Jesus have in the world? He just has one. There's many denominations, but one church. We are all part of the body of Christ. And I imagine as I'm speaking to the audience, I'm imagining eyes and arms and ears and big toes. And that's the body of Christ. And that's this year's rollout. And I know righteous living is not easy. It's a challenge. But what is the alternative? Friends, that's it. We know the Lord. We are plan A. And that's all there is. Bill, I think that's it.
0: I, I love that. I, Greg, I have so many notes that I took during this, so I know we don't have a lot of time left, about a minute, but when you asked the question, what is sin, I thought, well, what came to my mind is that it is a vicious enslaving power. It is mm. it is something that's uh, vicious, and it is enslaving. So you come to faith, and the power of the of the resurrection and the cross breaks that enslaving power and for the first time you can live in freedom
2: yes yeah well, and there's always the words he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose
0: right greg thank you so much and merry christmas to you and your family
2: and to you too Bill. all right thanks a lot dr greg
0: headington has been my guest we'll take a short break and be right back Podcasts like mine are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now.